Welcome to The Creative Switch, the podcast inspiring the sensibly successful to switch on their unexpressed creativity for a more fulfilled life. In today's episode, I'm chatting to Harriet Kelsall, one of the most respected, bespoke designers and business trailblazers working in the UK jewellery industry today. Join us shortly as she explains how she founded her multi-award-winning business from her kitchen table in 1998 with the ambition to inspire and celebrate individuality through creativity. But what's the origins of her love for jewellery and how did she end up here after a career in computing? Stay tuned to find out. And if you're looking to turn your own creative inspiration into action, don't forget to listen right to the end of the episode and catch up with my creative adventures. I share the challenges I encounter and how acting on the nuggets I've learned from my guests and applying those learnings is helping me to move forward in my own creative projects. I'll share some wonderful advice from Emma Balin on how to tackle the fear of trying something new. Before we get to that, do remember to head to my website, nikkivalance.com and sign up to join the free Creative Switch community and get involved in the creative conversation. You can connect with like-minded creatives, find a safe space to share your challenges, support each other, and maybe even collaborate to create something together. First though, it's time for some creative news in The Edge. As regular listeners will know, I like to keep up with trends and news in the creative sector and share articles which catch my eye and I hope will spark your interest. This time there seems to have been an explosion of innovation and cultural output. It may be something to do with a move into the new year and a looking forward focus perhaps. Whatever the reason, I had trouble choosing, so I've narrowed it down to a few pieces which sparkled and seemed pertinent to this episode. As a creative entrepreneur, I've always enjoyed watching the BBC's Dragon's Den and became an early fan of Stephen Bartlett's podcast, Diary of a CEO, after seeing him on the show. And last week, thoroughly enjoyed watching the successful pitch from Sydney Newhouse and Jessica Watch for their lab-grown diamond business, Kimai, where they secured his investment. I love their aim of bringing a new level of transparency to the jewellery industry. Ethics and sustainability in the sector have not always been a priority. But today's modern buyers and makers are shifting the spotlight, placing far more scrutiny on the opaque practices of the past and searching for these values in the businesses they buy from or pieces they create. You can find a whole host of other businesses and designers with a sustainable focus in an article from Luxury London the best ethical and sustainable business jewellery brands. Amongst them are many designers who create bespoke pieces for their customers, including those from Recycled Gold and Family Heirlooms. These are, of course, luxury brands, and for a long time, bespoke was not an affordable option for most of us, something which is thankfully changing now, as we will discuss later in the episode. The final article is one from The Creative Boom. This time, not about a jeweller, but a graphic designer, Laura Moyer. You'll see how this resonates throughout the episode, as it illustrates how where we live no longer restricts our creativity and often inspires it. 
head to the bottom of the show notes where all the links I've mentioned are listed under the edge. Are you interested in buying from sustainable creative businesses? How important is it to you, either as a maker or a customer? Do let me know either in the Creative Switch community or on Instagram at Nikki underscore Vance. And listen to my conversation with the trailblazing designer who started her bespoke jewellery business 25 years ago on a kitchen table and who now with her team has customers all over the world, Harriet Kelsall. Hello, Harriet, and welcome to The Creative Switch. Thank you very much, Nikki. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. We've got lots to cover. I'm really, really interested in your story. I know a little bit about it from what I've read. But before we get into that, maybe you could just tell me and the listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do so they get a flavour of what you're about. Right. Well, I guess that's a tricky question because I've got lots of different hats that I wear, depending on what I'm doing each day. My, my life is very varied. But I suppose fundamentally, I'm a bespoke jeweller. So we're the UK's leading bespoke jeweller. I started the business from my kitchen table when I was 28 and I'm now 52. So that's quite a while ago. So we're actually having our 25th birthday, which is quite exciting. And in that time, we've made, I think, nearly 30,000 bespoke pieces of jewellery. And I think what generally people talk about me having done or us having done is to have brought bespoke jewellery to the high street for the first time. And we started a bit of a wave in jewellers being able to, rather than just offering off the shelf solutions, to being able to to actually realise that people could have something that was made especially for them, which is mm-hmm. what bespoke means. Yeah. So now I've got a team of 40 and uh four branches. So we have a, our main studio in North Hertfordshire, fairly near Baldock in the countryside. And that's where our workshop is. And then we also have a sort of smaller studio and shop in Cambridge, another in London in Primrose Hill. And the newest one is in St Albans, which is very exciting because it's like coming home because I was originally from St Albans. And um, as well as, as all of that, um, I'm a non-executive director for various organisations. So I've been the chair of the National Association of Jewellers, which is the main trade body for the trade and I'm a freeman of the worshipful company of goldsmiths which is the livery company I train apprentices with them I've mentored lots of other creative businesses I've written a book on starting a creative business which won won a book award which is exciting and I do a lot of public speaking in different fields so I public speak mainly about business responsibility and ethics because we've done quite a lot to move the industry on in that way mm-hmm. and I also have other subjects like I'm very dyslexic which I think isn't called dyslexia anymore it's now called SPLD I talk about neurodiversity I also talk about starting a creative business just written a new talk on the history of the Medici pearls which was a talk that my mum used to do in and around St Albans for NADFAS and so I've rewritten it she's in her 80s and doesn't want to do it anymore and I've changed it a bit and put some new bits on and then other than that I'm also a non-executive director for the intellectual property office who take care of trademarks patents copyright, design right. And that's very interesting, uh, 20 days a year. And I'm also an non-executive director for the British Allied Trade Federation and another organisation uh, used to be a director for the Responsible Jewelry Council till my term ended and the British Hallmarking Council. So yeah, quite a lot of different hats, um, yeah. depending on uh, what's going on day to day. Brilliant. I'm sure we're going to come on to how do you do that in a, a little while. <laughs> I would love to ask you, because I ask all my guests this, I love the variety of the answers that are given to this question, but I would like to know what creativity means to you. 
I think creativity is one of those terms that people use in all different ways, as you say. So it's not surprising to me that you have different answers, because one of the things I, I talk about quite a lot is is how often people imagine that creativity can only be something in, in when you're sort of forming or making something visual or three-dimensional or poetry or film or you know something mm. that that is well known as a creative thing that's definitely creative but I also think that creative can be very much a thought process that you can put onto almost anything so what I encourage creative businesses to do when I mentor them instead of thinking great well here I am I'm a potter I'm creating these pots to actually apply their creative mind to their business mm. and to how they see their business rather than thinking well I just need to make the world want what I make now you know actually thinking hang on a minute let's look at the creativity within your business and let's understand how you can make sure that your creative outlet is something that people want by applying mm. your creative brain to the way your business works so I sort of think creative thinking means not thinking in straight lines mm. I think it means thinking in three dimensions for me when I'm thinking at my most creatively, I'm thinking like layers of an onion. So I start at the outside and think, oh, that's the rough shape of the project. And that's the rough problem. And I'm sort of solving things all at once. So I'm looking at visually, is it great? You know, design wise, does it work? Is it makeable? And then I'm thinking, yes, but is it marketable? Is it affordable? And, and all these different aspects, how is it environmentally? How is it for the people at the bottom of the supply chain? And I'm stepping down these layers of the onion so that when I do get to the solution, it's a very complete creative solution as opposed to somebody who might think in straight lines about finance and straight lines about marketing and straight mm. lines about visual creativity and sometimes those straight lines don't meet because because they've sort of gone down a straight line in quite a long way before they're joining it up so for mm. me it's sort of joined up thinking as well yeah so I think people sometimes can get come to a bit of a dead end and not understand why the thing they wanted to happen isn't happening and it's because they've perhaps as you say gone too far down one particular way of thinking I totally agree with you I mean in the broader sense of the word it just means the production of something new so it isn't about that visual art it's more more of a societal view of what creativity is yeah I absolutely agree with that and and I think that sometimes people don't really realize how much creativity there is in even things that they really wouldn't think were creative so for example I was involved with the the crafts council invited me to a manifesto at the house of commons a, a few years ago and they were they were sort of releasing this thing they were trying to do which was to get a lot more creativity back into schools and um there was somebody from the Royal College of Surgeons talking, who said, as you probably know, now nowadays, people don't get to muck around with clay at school like we used to in our day. It's just something we did as part of it. And now, now it's out of the curriculum. And so what that means is people don't muck around with clay. And he was talking about how he gets these amazing surgeons who are sort of grade A science students and are really clever at all the things you need to do with surgery. But he has to give them pottery lessons because they can't cut in a straight line. And that's because creativity is sort of ebbing out of the curriculum. And yeah. I just thought that was such a, a good point because mm -hmm. I don't know about you, but I mean, I had heart surgery a few years ago and I'm very glad that the surgeon could cut in a straight line because it's <laughs> kind of kind of important. And I mean, that, that, that doesn't yeah. seem creative, but actually you learn skills like that through creativity as well. Mm -hmm. So it's not only how creativity is defined, it's also what else you use those skills you learn along the way. And, yeah. and the other thing I would say is you talked about creativity being doing something new I actually sometimes think creativity is in putting existing things together in a new way yes you, you can combine things that um that are 
pre-existing but but combined in a completely new way and yeah. and that's that's definitely creative too definitely and actually in my sphere in the writing world they often say a good story is a story that you are familiar with but it's told in a different way with a different voice or in a different setting and people actually like familiarity they don't like things to be so different mm. that they can't understand it because that's just confronting often but mm. I think it is that comes back to what you were saying about once you've created something or as you're creating something, you want to think about how it's received as well as the process of making it. Because if you are going yeah. to run a creative business, it has to have an audience and uh, it has to be something they can relate to. Otherwise, they're not going to buy it from you. Yeah, exactly. I get lots of creative people saying to me, I've done all this jewellery and it's great. And it's inspired by dead rats. And all I now need to do is nail the marketing because I need to make everybody want what I've created. And I kind of say, well, you know, I don't know about the market for jewellery for dead rats. I mean, I'm sure there is one, but I'm not sure it's as big a market as it's going to keep you paying your rent. So you know, maybe what you need to do is start with what do people want and then look at how you're designing it. And I think a lot of creative people sort of think it's about making the world want what they want to create, mm. which is more like art mm. and has a very different purpose in, mm. in society. And actually, it's interesting you're talking about writing because I wanted to say to you something that happened to me when I was writing my book, which I thought you'd be interested in, which is um, I was struggling when I was writing my book. I'm very dyslexic and I was struggling about trying to get something across in my book, which was about how where the only thing that separates a successful entrepreneur from an unsuccessful one is this sort of inability to give up that when it doesn't work you change the idea you change the shape of it you change the way it's being expressed or you change the fundamental idea you just keep going until it works and I was trying to express this and I chatted to an author who I know who who I happen to bump into who's got five books out and he said to me and I hadn't told him what I was struggling but I said oh I'm struggling today to express something and he said you know what Harriet the only thing that separates a successful author from an unsuccessful one is the inability to give up and you keep rewriting it and you keep thinking again and you keep honing down the way your words work and you keep changing your message until you get something that's right that people want to receive and I just thought oh my goodness that's exactly the same thing mm. and it hadn't really occurred to me that writing a book was exactly like starting mm. a business in a way and mm. so I just thought that would that was interesting yeah definitely I'm so talking about your book because I, I wanted to come on to that so let's skip to that what a great idea and I might be wrong in saying this, but most of the creatives that I've come across who are makers find the idea of business or marketing or letting go of their creative baby and turning it into something that actually has to sell really difficult. And lots of authors definitely mm. do. So I'm guessing your book is there to solve that problem and that it's about a mindset that you have to make that shift between the two different ways of being. Yeah, kind of. But it, it's written for creative people who, who don't necessarily think in the way that other people do. We don't always think in straight lines. And so it sort of strips it back and says, great, first of all, what are you are doing this for? Who are you doing this for? What's a niche? Because people say, oh, you, you just have to find your niche. And you think, what are you talking about? You know, yeah. <laughs> I didn't know what that meant. And now I know exactly what it means. And so I've tried to express it in examples. Because for mm. me, once I've seen four examples of what a niche is, I go, oh, right, that's a niche. I get it now. Now mm. I know what I've got to do. And nobody told me all of that. Mind you, you know, most creative people, they don't know they're starting a business. They're just doing what they do because they have to do it. And then they think, well, I've got to make money out of it. So I better start a business because I think that's what you have to do. And so they start a business, but that's they're not kind of sitting there trying to be an entrepreneur. You know, most of us can't even spell it. It's just about, you know, doing what you do. And, and so the book talks to those people and says, right, 
you've established that you're doing what you do and you're trying to do this thing called start a business, you're not quite sure what it is. And so let's look at your business and split it down into these little easy to understand chunks so that you get it. And then you can put those together really easily. So the book actually sort of talks you through how to form what is essentially a business plan without using the words business plan. Mm. So that's that's what it's about. And it comes from experience of um, having mentored so many creative businesses that I found that I was saying the same things to them and the same things were successful for them and the same things were causing them problems. Mm. And so I sort of wrote it down so that, uh, I mean, you know, it's not about making money. I think I make about 2p from each book uh, once Little Brown had finished with a contract. So actually, you know, it's not about that. For me, it was just about expressing something that if I wrote it down, it might help some other creative businesses. And we've done it on audiobook as well, because I thought, well, people like me can't always quite deal with reading text. So even though there was lots of pictures, so uh, that might help some people too. So it's sort of distilling down all of your experience as a mentor because of recurring themes that kept coming out. But you still do some mentoring. And obviously, you've got your team, you've got your big team. Yes. But it wasn't always that big. So take me right back to the beginning on the kitchen table. Where did that come from? Why did you decide that was what you were going to do? Well, I made my first ring when I was about four. In fact, I was four. My dad was a doctor in St Albans and and he was also a jeweller and he'd started off years ago doing it as a hobby because he just really was really good at making jewellery and then later on due to sort of working for the NHS and so on he needed to make ends meet and so he started making jewellery and selling wedding rings to people he knew and stuff like that as a sort of way to just help make ends meet and then you know when I came along much later uh, he would come back from surgery late at night, sit on his bench making something. He was tired, so he'd drop things. And I'd say, this is the cubic zircon and that's the diamond and sort of learned from him. But then I went into the computer industry. I was sort of focused on subjects which were not wordy because dyslexia wasn't really very well known about when I was at school or really believed in. So I didn't know I was dyslexic. I just thought I was really bad at spelling and stuff. And so I focused on maths and physics and art and then studied industrial design, which is a bit like product design, and then ended up going into the computer industry. So I'd been in the computer industry, and but I just had this burning desire to go into that. My mum had said to me, don't follow a creative path. She, she'd been to art school mm. and was is very creative but she'd found that she couldn't support herself after she had to be really brave and leave her first husband who was quite violent and difficult and she managed to do that but she wasn't really financially independent so it was really hard so she she was sort of saying to me you've got to be financially independent you know do this computing stuff if you can it's there's more money in it than art so I'd done that but then I sort of I think ultimately brought those two things together so I started designing and making pieces especially for friends and friends of friends and I had a workshop in my garden and I was an engineering manager for a computer firm and so I was very busy And then I thought, I think I can do this. I think I just have to give this a go, this bespoke jewellery thing. No one else is doing it other than, you know, really for people who have huge, huge budgets in Bond Street. Or you might know a bloke, usually a bloke with a workbench or make something to your specification, but nobody was designing and making to budget. So that's what I did. And and the reason, probably one of the main reasons for it being successful is I think I had the first jewellery website in 1996. So my website predates Google and things like that. And so my kind of route to market was through the internet because I I was living in the countryside. And that route to market was very successful because teachers and doctors were early adopters of the internet. And so they found my site. And so most of my customers at first were doctors and teachers. And then it spread from there. And then, you know, I had a feeling the internet was going to catch on. I remember there's a story I sometimes tell about how I'd made a tiara for a friend of another customer who was based in 
Stevenage, which is, which is quite near um, one of our workshops. And um, she had a friend in Scotland who wanted a tiara and she'd been let down by a designer at the last minute. It was a Thursday and it was her wedding on Saturday. And she phoned me in a panic saying, I need a tiara, I need an emergency tiara because uh, I've all been in that situa- <laughs> situation. And I said to her, oh, I don't know, I can do it, but I need to know exactly what you want. And Back then, you know, you didn't have picture phones and you couldn't just ping a picture to someone on an email. So I, I said, oh, have you heard of this thing called the internet? And she said, oh, yeah, my brother's friend's got that on his computer, I think. And I was like, great. So if I draw some sketches now, upload them to this page, you know, one and a half hours later, <laughs> and then you can look at them and then you can tell me which ones you like. And if I've got the idea right from what you're saying, she was like, great, we did that. She said, yes, I like that one, but with that stone and this color, made the tiara really quickly and got it to her in time. And that was what made me realise that this internet thing was amazingly powerful. And if I could somehow reach people all over the country, all over the world, Mm. that was something that was quite significant and Mm. quite different from what other jewellers were doing. And so that's where it all started, really. So quite a long answer to quite a short question. It's a really interesting journey in that you were doing it at a time when the internet was at least there. But I guess... The kernel of the jeweller in you started way back before that. You were just waiting for a moment that was the right moment. I guess there's that question that people must have asked you before. What was it that made you think, no, whilst this is stable and I can work and do have a very good career doing this other thing, no, I need to pursue my creative passion? Because that switching moment is often quite difficult to pinpoint, but sometimes easier when you look back? Um, I don't think there was a particular moment, but I I remember that I'd done over 30 commissions for Friends of Friends. And actually, probably I'd done more than that over the year or two when I was sort of trying to improve my skills. And then I remember I looked and I had a waiting list of over 30. And I do remember a moment thinking, there's a lot of people who like what I do and everyone I do stuff for is recommending me. Actually, I think this is something rather than something I'm going to have to just do as a hobby and enjoy. This is something that I could take further. Mm-hmm. And so there, I, there was probably a moment of realizing there was a demand mm-hmm. and thinking, brilliant, that's not what I thought. And maybe I should just do this. And, and there was that moment of, well, if I don't do it now, I probably never will. Because I was at a time I didn't have kids. You know, I'd only had a flat with a mortgage, but it didn't feel too scary. Yeah. And I had 400 pounds saved up. And so I thought, well, I'll give it a few weeks and see how I go. So it was also a timing thing about where I was in my life. I could do that. I could sort of invest that time and energy into it. Those two things, I think. Fantastic. But going back to what you said earlier on when you introduced yourself, you now wear many, many hats and have had other hats that you've now since dropped because these things come around cyclically. But how do you do that? How do you balance all those different uses of your knowledge and skills? And which bits do you enjoy the most? I suppose the main how is I couldn't do all of these other things if my team and my own company wasn't brilliant. So for many years, for probably 20 years, my focus was entirely on that business. I worked all hours. And I think something that some creative people are frightened of is bringing other people up behind them. They feel threatened by it. Whereas I always just felt like, well, I'm going to teach lots of people and hopefully they'll stay and we can do this together because we can be better than the sum of our parts that by if I get the environment right for them. And so I absolutely invested in teaching people timing, putting my energy in there, 
thinking about which bits of what I did can I cut off and give to somebody else and how's that going to work and how can we sort of scale it I suppose not that I would have used terms like that and my vision kept growing so at first I thought oh I want to have a company of five people and then I sort of had that and I was like actually I think I might want a second premises because everything's relying on Google and they can just change everything and so maybe actually I'll I'll not rely on Google and there was always the vision would change and grow and um I think if it wasn't the case that I had a brilliant team behind me, I just wouldn't be able to do anything else. And also there's a bit of a reason as to why I do the other things. Partly it's because I really like helping the industry. And that makes me sound like I'm saying that in some really silly sort of self-promoting way. I promise I'm not. You know, I do actually really like, I think it's really important to let people stand on your shoulders and, and let people grow. But also because I found that whenever I did do this stuff, like sitting on boards of the British Jewellers Association and then the National Association of Jewellers and so on, I learned so much from that. I sort of thought, oh, this is what a real board's like. We yeah. could do some of this back at my company. And, oh, that's interesting. That's an issue that's around the corner for the industry. I hadn't heard of that. And, oh, now I know somebody who can help me with this thing. And so... I didn't really do it for myself. I did it to sort of help. I thought, okay, you know, it's time I did a bit of helping. But actually, I found that it brought my business so much that Mm. it it was really worth the time. There was that. And so I started out like that. And then I found that actually boards are often made up of people who are very, they have a very predictable sort of board set of people that people like on boards, like a lawyer and an HR person and a finance person. And those are the people they have. And what I discovered being on these boards was that there was something I could bring that people found useful, which was a different way of thinking because of my neurodiversity and also because of being an actual person that's actually started a small business and actually done it. And a lot of people don't really understand what that means because a lot of people that start small businesses don't don't really bother to sit on other boards and so they don't really get to talk on boards and actually change things for the benefit of other small businesses and so there was an element of trying to stand up for other small businesses and improve things for all of us mm. and there was an element of this is something I can be quite valuable on so now two two of my non, non-executive director positions are paid which is quite nice most of them were voluntary before then and so now I find that I can actually bring something that's useful to the other boards beyond just finding it really interesting and it helps to stretch my brain juggling lots of juggling <laughs> <laughs> yes and the team behind you as, as you say for some people who are further behind you in that journey what they'll be doing is they might be reaching the point where they can't do it all themselves and then they have to identify which bits to give to other people which skills that they're best serving using their own but yeah brilliant okay well there's so much more we could talk about but what I want to make sure people can do is learn from you well and also Mm. buy from you so how can they find you where would they go if they had a need for a bespoke piece of jewelry how would that process work tell us a little bit about that before we Mm -hmm. finish yeah, so bespoke jewellery is about having something made especially for you. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes people come because they want an engagement ring and they just want it to really suit them or because they want to have something because they met climbing mountains and so they want something inspired by climbing mountains and they want it to I don't know, match someone's eyes or they wanted to use birthstones. A lot of people come to us because they've got a lot of jewellery, either from previous marriages or from inheritance, and they want to melt the metal down take the stones and reuse in amazing new ways. Um, And a lot of jewellers can't quite do that because it's quite a 
complicated process. So we, we do a lot of that sort of making new heirlooms, I suppose. So yeah, so people can find us in either in our studio shops in St Albans, Cambridge, North Hertfordshire and North London, or we do a lot of virtual consultations online all over the world. Um, so our website's hkjewelry.co.uk and people can connect with us on Instagram, Harriet Kelsall, and sort of have a little bit of a look about the kinds of stuff that we do. Mm-hmm. And we, we love it. So we'll sit down with somebody and say, or, you know, virtually or physically and show them things and chat to them about what they want. And they'll say, you know, I want a necklace inspired by my children's birthstones and I want it to be inspired by the fact that they like drawing dinosaurs, but I also don't want it to just be a dinosaur because that'd be weird. And so, you know, we'll take that and I want to spend £1,000. And so we'll, we'll do it to their budget and draw it and make it for them especially. And that's how it works. Fantastic. Well, we do have another thing in common, which is St Albans, because I live in St Albans, and I saw the shop being fitted out. I thought, ah. oh, this looks fun. And then we connected elsewhere, and I just thought, oh, we've got to speak. I'm really delighted that you're able to make time to come on, because I know how busy you are. And I would like to continue to follow your journey and for us to stay in touch, come back again and tell me about the next new thing that you're doing. I think you're really inspirational because... You- It's almost like it's organically happened. You haven't set out to do all these things, but they've come to you at the time when they felt right. And you thought, well, I'll give it a go. And I think that's a really good lesson for people not to sort of worry too much about what the big thing is, but just do the thing that makes them happy and see where that takes them. Exactly. And define what success means to you, you know, and it can change. You know, I I didn't really realise I was going to create something quite this big not that it's big we're still a small business but it's big for the jewelry industry and it's big for a creative person I just sort of thought I'll do this and then maybe I'll do that and and the team are all involved in making the strategy it's not just about me that makes a big difference because if it's just you driving it you're you're probably going to really struggle to get there on your own you've got to bring people with you and you've got to bring people up behind you and you've got Mm -hmm. to make sure that their creativity is fulfilled as well Um, it's about having the courage to share that journey and to Mm -hmm. let people really be properly part of it but yeah absolutely yeah let's stay in touch I'd love to come and chat again it's been really lovely to meet you it's an amazing podcast I really like it thank you very much good luck with everything and I will hopefully speak to you soon speak to you soon What a success story and what an inspiration Harriet is to anyone who is starting small but has a big vision for change and for doing things differently. Now it's creative adventures time and I promise to share some advice from Emma Balin on how to tackle the fear of trying something new. Most of us are running around just trying to keep up with life and the day-to-day stresses and strains of our career and family responsibilities. So moving out of our comfort zone, taking on something new and adding to the stress, why would we? Well, you may want to learn a new skill, reconnect with a creative passion which has been pushed out of your schedule, or just feel a little less stuck. As Emma says in our conversation, the stretch zone is where we get our biggest, most powerful learning experiences. Sure, it's important to get the balance right push yourself too hard or too fast and you risk triggering too much stress and going into freeze or flight mode. But you do need to feel a little bit uncomfortable and a little bit scared. This is the place where progress is made. If you've been following my creative adventures for a little while, you'll know I've been learning the Argentine tango with my husband. We started with one-to-one lessons on holiday in Buenos Aires and made great progress with a fabulous teacher. Then we realised we needed something to aim for to keep the momentum going 
and in a rash moment decided to book onto an intense weekend workshop of group classes in Montreal. Sounds a bit bonkers, but our teacher is a guest tutor for the weekend and we thought we'd follow her and combine more learning with travel to a new location. Wonderful. What's the issue here? At the time of booking, we've not found anywhere to practice. And despite it being a social dance, we've never even been to a group class. We just about got comfortable having to repeat the steps we've been taught in a one-to-one situation with a teacher, but the prospect of dancing in front of more people felt scary. So to bridge the gap, I found a local couple who've been teaching the dance for many years and approached them about private lessons. They happened to be running a group beginner's taster class, and we decided to give it a go. It was definitely a stretch. New teachers, new environment, new experience. And we did feel more confident coming out than going in. Overall, we refreshed and built on our knowledge and realised that in a group, no one else is bothered about how skilled you are. They're too concerned about their own feet. We've booked some more one-to-one lessons in the run-up to the weekend workshop, as we're still very much beginners. I think it will be a while before even the basics feel like a comfort zone. So here's to more stretch and more powerful learning. And if a podcast is a creative adventure that you'd like to begin, check out the links for Alitu, my podcast recording and editing software, and Captivate, my podcast hosting software. Are you stepping outside of your comfort zone and learning something new? Do tell us all about your experiences in the Creative Switch community. We'd love to hear all about your creative adventures. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Creative Switch. If you enjoyed it, please leave a review over on podchaser.com. And if you've got any questions, please let me know on Instagram at Nikki underscore balance. I do hope you join me next time and my guest Claire Waite Brown, fellow podcaster and host of the Creativity Found podcast. And find out why she shares my passion for encouraging adults to tap into their creativity. And remember, why survive when you can thrive?